This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. Uh, we're doing some more end of year. Let's get into the nitty gritty for buying, for vendors this week. Yeah. So what we're doing is basically it's something we've touched on periodically throughout episodes. And it's like, you know, the different kind of buy, employees you have at a booth. You've got your buyers, you've got your front of house, your processors, et cetera, et cetera. And we've covered that in broad strokes, but we're actually going to get into the nitty gritty of it. And the first episode is going to be a two episode series. The first one is going to be on buyers yep. because there are different kinds of buyers and there's different kinds of things that go into being a vendor as a buyer, even down to your buying style and some things that impact it, like what booth you're working yes. for, uh, you know. Lots, lots goes into it more than just getting a guy that knows numbers, which, as we'll touch on, is one aspect, mm-hmm. but not the only aspect yeah. of a good buyer. Yep, absolutely. And uh, you and I have worked at a, a number of booths for different people, so we have a, a decent perspective on, you know, what it's kind of like out there, what the requirements are. You know, you work for a company, and you learn that style. Sometimes when you come and you sit in for somebody, they're going to tell you exactly how you have to handle things. Or sometimes they'll just let you roll with it if they think that you handle their business well enough or that their model is kind of wide open enough to handle uh, your style. Yeah. So it it definitely uh, plays in. And then you have some other booths that are like uh, Strike Zone that just put out the here's everything off of our buy list God book. Yeah. Like, please, Have fun. yeah, please don't leave. But also, if you leave with it, please return it. And then you yeah. just hand them the God book and your stack of cards. And that's that. And it's like, that's super efficient and awesome. Uh, Pretty so, much. So for me, I don't do uh, magic buys that often when I'm working locally uh, for troll when I have to, you know, handle the, the local stuff. You know, I work off uh, their buy list. It's a one day event. So I really just generate it morning of after I've set up and it's not uh, too bad, but I don't really buy for anybody else that I work for because they have their tenured employees, their, you know, the, their employees that they pay outside of events like we talked about last week to, to buy for them. You, on the other hand, have much more experience uh, buying for different booths. You know, that's from what we've talked about, a lot of what you're brought in to do. So as we've identified, there's you know, two large pillars. There's the experienced buyer and the numbers buyer. And you have enough experience in this world that, as we talked about earlier, you said you're more of the an experienced style buyer, not somebody yeah. going straight by the numbers. Or knows so all the, the numbers, per se. Yeah, exactly. And there's, you know, if you've ever been to a booth, you've interacted with both. You've interacted with a guy that's friendly, wants to have a conversation, hang out for a little bit, and at the end of the conversation, hand you some money for cards. Yep. And you've sat down with a guy that knows numbers, points, says them, points, says them, points, says them. On you go. And then at the end, they just hand you cash for your cards. And that's it. And both of those are perfectly valid. I personally am more of an experiential buyer. And the thing there is, so the numbers guy 
you know you're getting the right number or the number for that booth pretty much always. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever their percentage is, if it's something that they have extra stock on. With the experienced buyer, it's a lot more of like a friend, like connection type of thing. Yep. Uh, there was a event I did, I think it was Oklahoma City last year or the year before. I don't know. Time doesn't matter when there's no events anymore. Yeah, yeah. Two years ago. Uh, anyways. So did Oklahoma City and sat down with a guy for probably about 45 minutes to an hour mm -hmm. doing a buy, had a conversation, and it was literally, I started off by saying, look, uh, I'm going to pull stuff out or I'm going to point and say numbers. You say yes, no, whatever, and we'll go from there. Mm -hmm. And we have a conversation. We're sitting down there. At the end of the buy, he's satisfied with it, and he goes, you know what? Here, take this. And he hands me an altered Sensei's dividing top that has the wave of Kanagawa in the background. And I was like, what's this for? And he goes, you know, it's just nice to form a connection and talk to someone at one of these events because I feel like I spend so much time going from one spot to the next. Yeah. And it's all about what you're trying to get out of it. Because when I go and I'm selling cards, I don't want the experience. I want to sit down. I want to hand you a stack of cards. You just put it at numbers. We sit there in silence, and that's the end of the transaction. Yeah, fair enough. But when I'm on the other side... It's more about like breaking up the tedium and monotony by having a conversation. That said, yeah, I generally know numbers, but I don't spend hours before an event making sure I know all the numbers exactly. Yeah, and that's something that differs from place to place because mm -hmm. there's been some vendors that I've worked with where they have their buy list, and if it's on the hot list, the number's the number, and that's pretty much the same anywhere. The hot list, the number's the number. Yeah. If it's just on their buy list, but not the hot list, the number is your ceiling. And okay. you can pay less than that. And that's kind of where the experiential thing plays into as well. And full disclosure here, I'm going to be completely transparent. If I am having a conversation with you and it is going well, I absolutely will pay you less on some cards because I know I can. Yep. You probably know that coming to me because we're in the business of making each other money. I'm making you money. I'm making my employer money. I'm making me money by being there. Yep. And that's kind of what it boils down to. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of, and that's kind of like the, you know, cost exchange there. There is a cost to time and you pay it by taking lower numbers on your cards in some cases. And in some cases I pay more because the conversation's great. That's kind of just how it works when you go for an experiential buyer. Yep. And you know, understanding when you get there, that's what you're doing. And I, I want to stress here for a moment, sorry to break this up, that this is not uncommon. And I know we've talked about this before. When you sit down in a booth and you're working with somebody, you know, they're going to, not everyone, there are people that love the read. Yeah. To read their opponent in this situation. And it's the battle. <laughs> And we've talked about this before, the battle of, of buying and selling cards like this. And if you and I are sitting down at, at a booth, you're, get, you, you're probably going to test me. You'll test me yeah. on some standard, some modern, all the way down. And you'll find that spot. And as we're having the conversation, we're going along, you're going to get me in, that, in my blind spot, you know, where yeah. I've lost that test. Maybe it's EDH, right? And so cards that sell well for you... For EDH that I, I don't know, I don't know all my prices on my binders worth of stuff, you know, you'll get me, quote unquote, there. And it's not going to be for a lot, you know, we're not moving, you know, no. Snapcasters down, like, 30% kind of thing. But it is that kind of, like, 
back and forth and and it is ex- exactly that you're you're there for the experience you know what's going to happen you're going to sit down with somebody because your numbers while they might fluctuate across the board are generally going to be pretty stable and oftentimes you might wind up with more on something than you expected as part of that yeah and that's part of that is when you're staffing a booth and you get your buyers you do want a good blend of both numbers guys and experiential because you do want a nice rounded team Mm -hmm. and you know a phrase there's another guy i work with pretty commonly it's the same deal he all about the conversation and the interaction uh we say that we're there to make the dollars make sense and that's all it's there for if the price at the end of it you're leaving and you're happy with the interaction that's all that matters to us you know if that's the end of the transaction i don't care if i didn't buy a single one of your cards at that point you had a pleasant interaction and that's all i ask for yep and you know generally i think that's true of numbers guys as well Mm -hmm. that's just much more what i'm going for when i'm sitting down with someone to buy and like you said it is about the read and finding out where they're a little bit weaker in like there was a very particular interaction i remember it was at indiana and or indianapolis guy shows up he's like hey i have the shoebox uh i stopped playing around return to ravnica i haven't paid attention to the game since so when i hear that i'm going back in my autistic price memory and trying to remember what cards were priced at around that era okay so not my proudest moment but it's one of those things where you see the weakness and knowledge you read it and you know rather than pay twelve dollars for a cyclonic rift i paid eight to nine depending on condition because that's what they were and just said yeah "Yeah, well there were like three in standard but i was like hey eight to nine and he was like that's a lot of money i thought that car was like five bucks i'm like no edh players love it it sells for about ten so you know you're it's a good conversation i'll give you like eight to nine on it we need a lot of them and that's where that comes from and that's you know, the numbers guy you may not have the best personal interaction with, although you know more of the numbers being Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon. Yes. So what's that like on your end? Um, like, so for those games in particular, I have to be the numbers guy. For Magic, because I know the game a lot better, I can be more uh, experienced. But for Magic, I let my seller dictate the conversation. It's, uh, I start the same way, which is the, the question of, do you want me to point at cards and give you prices and you yes or no them, or do you just want me to pull them out and put them on? You know, yeah. doesn't matter who it is. That's basically the first question after, hi, how are you? Thanks for waiting, what have you. Um, I try to make it a little bit of, experience, of, an ex, of an experience, but I can't because the research required to price those games on the fly quickly for somebody that doesn't play them is extremely difficult. The reason I get tasked with Yu-Gi-Oh more often than not is because my eyes are still good and I can read the set codes on those godforsaken cards. God. So if you're if you're unfamiliar with it and I should have pulled up this uh, and I'm very sorry, in between the art and the text box on the right-hand side of a Yu-Gi-Oh card is the set identification number. And it's usually some amount of letters and numbers with a dash. And the only system that's worthwhile to use those names and accurate to find a price is actually the Troll and Toad website because they document everything in their database regarding a card. 
so it's super easy to for me to buy for troll when I'm looking at that. Similarly with Pokemon, the middle of this game in between the Watsi era and like uh, not maybe it was Neo Genesis somewhere around there. The middle of that game is basically a black hole for prices. It's a lot of like nostalgia cards because some of the full arts happened around there and a lot of interesting promos. But to find that, you need to look for the set number and that could be located in the bottom left or the bottom right, depending on what card it is. So it's very difficult for me to give somebody an experience while I'm like picking up a card and giving it like the old jeweler loop, trying to figure out what it is. Yeah. And then you know, I got to type it in, find a number, and not everything comes back because these games reprint and tin. And that's the diff that's the hard part about Yu-Gi-Oh! is something like, uh, what are we talking about? Pot of Greed, depending on <laughs> what was going on with Standard and whether or not it was legal, could be worth money or it could be worth bulk. But at the same time, that card's been reprinted so many times that even if I know it by name, it's something that I should pull out there's a very good chance that the code I'm looking at is going to come back as bulk. Yu-Gi-Oh! is a game that really relies on first that relies on first edition to carry price weight, but at times, low print sets, which I don't know, do carry some value as well. So it's very difficult for me to give somebody an experience when that actually happens. If I see something interesting, maybe I'll comment and try and keep them engaged, which to me is very important when I'm doing the buy. The last thing I want is somebody to sit down yeah. that is kind of open and amenable to having a conversation and just like relax, not necessarily put their guard, their guard down, but just yeah. have human interaction for a bit because they've been waiting or what uh, is t tantamount to me, but difficult to provide. Like I said, with magic, it's different because I can idly flip pages and I know bulk from, you know, priceable cards. These other two games are, are question marks. They're, and I feel bad every time I have to do it, but it's just kind of the understanding. Luckily, buying Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon means I'm at an anime convention and there are enough people in line waiting to sell us cards that they often talk to themselves. Not like literally one person yeah. to themselves, but like... The person behind them or somebody at the booth they take care of the chatter themselves and for me that really eases the interaction overall and i greatly appreciate that if i was the kind of person that needed to do that for magic and it was happening at, at a gp you know where you you don't really get that kind of line all that often once you're out of the first couple of rounds i would feel a lot worse uh, as a yeah. buyer overall and even then for magic i'm still a numbers guy i still I, I understand what I'm looking for, but I don't know all the numbers. And to me, that's, for me, I should say, that's a better mix because that's how I handle my business when I go to a Magic Fest, similarly to you. I don't need to have that interaction unless I've priced my cards out ahead of time and I'm sitting down at a booth with somebody I know. Yeah. Like, there have been Magic Fests where I've priced my stuff out and I only looked at vendor booths where I knew there would be people behind the booth and I would sit down and have a conversation with them and I'd be like, look, I already did the work for you. Just double check my numbers. And then yeah, they, make sure this is right. Yeah. And then we can continue. And then they make it look like they're busy because they slowly price pile things out as we shoot the shit for the next 45 yep. minutes. Like That's and, my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I do that all the time. It's, it's yeah. awesome because, it, it, like I said, the... I did their job for them, so we don't have to deal with that part, that that crap anymore. And it gives them a break from just yeah. the, like the battle that is buying all weekend long, even if you're not actually struggling. But 
the reason I like preparing my numbers ahead of time is to avoid some experiences that I've had where I know my numbers and then somebody just comes in and they just try to like 60% me off of the numbers on their buy list from the day before. And I literally have scooped my cards from more than yeah. one booth. And I've, I've said it loud enough to let the show lead know we're done here and walked away. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's you, you almost have to when that happens because it is, you know, as much as we talk about like, Hey, we're, you know, here to make money, whatever. It's kind of insulting to the other person to just completely like give it to them yeah. like that. You can't. I, dog, I just think that's yeah. in poor taste. You can't dog somebody like that anymore because if you sour me so much on this experience, one, I'm never going to come back, and two, I'm just going to sell on Facebook or TCG Player because yeah. I can literally walk away from your booth, go to an open table, take a photo of everything I'm trying to sell, and have it on Facebook in minutes. Yeah. And now you've lost out on uh, profit. Yeah, and, and you've I, angered I, a customer that has access to the internet on site. You know? And I think that's been something that's changed a lot with smartphones in terms of vending. Because like going back to Grand Prix back then, I, it was the wild, wild west. Yeah. All you had was Star City, Card Kingdom, whatever you wanted to base it on. And then TCG came out, and all of a sudden it was a new world. And you lost the ability to have like the separation between a number or the integration of like a strict numbers and an experiential guy mm -hmm. because there's so much more information out there now that you kind of have to have you know these almost distinct roles in order for them to be incredibly proficient at each of them yes yeah and i i think that that's one of the things that's changed the most over the years especially now like i mean pro tour Benjvine, whichever one that was where it was from day negative one to day zero, the price on that card exploded on site. Oh, and yeah, all yeah. of a sudden, everyone had to know what the no the new number was yeah. in order to have that card and to get it. And it, that was absolutely incredible. And it's one of those things that's just kind of changed as time has evolved that like, well, this is how we're going to do it now. Sorry, guys. Yeah. 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 And, and it's interesting to see because everybody now has a computer for the most part, or they have like I said, like I mentioned before, the strike zone uh, list of cards, and they're they're all gonna, yeah. they're going to go through it. So at this point, the, the the difference really is like the experienced guy is just going to like talk their way through your binder and like still reference the computer, but just kind of shoot from the hip a little more on on yeah. cards and just kind of pull as they go. The numbers guy is like literally just going to like turn the page check the mm -hmm. numbers, turn the page, check the numbers. So they're still going to be running it. It's yeah. It's just one's going to be a lot more... Uh, diligence the wrong word here because it's still diligence. It's just the experienced guy yeah. just knows better. I don't have to check everything. I know what we need enough so that I can have these conversations and give somebody a, a more like yeah. interesting slash uh better experience at the booth and the guy who's just gonna like talk a little bit and 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 run the numbers yeah so i i think too that you know something that i do want to touch on is when you go to an international booth what yes. that's like uh so like magic corner is really good about this um Pefei, i think is the big Chinese vendor that comes over for Vegas and Seattle and the West Coast events. Yep. Uh, they're really good about actually having someone who, when they come over, they have an experiential guy or a numbers guy 
that they contract independently local because admittedly there is a cultural and communication difference between those two drastically different areas yes. yeah. Europe and China than there is in America and it's kind of to have that guy that can bridge the gap or ease any communication issues and that's something that I've only been used for once uh, and it was really rewarding it was great but it's something that you know vendors are mindful of and there's been times where I've noticed one vendor in particular was really awful towards pretty much everyone uh, but by and large, most of those vendors actually are trying to help you out. And if you can just be a little bit more patient with them or try to find that guy that can go a long way in making the vendor's experience better. And as a vendor, bringing that makes your experience better. Because if you have a question, if you're not sure, if you don't know quite what you can get away with, or you're not sure how to read people, hmm? that's your guy. That's the one you want to bring. And I think that that kind of depends on where the GP is, you yes, know, because yeah. uh, obviously some areas you're not going to pull many people at all. So you're not going to pay extra staff, whatever, mm -hmm. how it is. Yeah. But I think that that's something that's worth noting as well is the need is a little bit more pronounced at international booths than it is at domestic booths to have this kind of differentiation between the two. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The, the local understanding is imperative for stuff like that especially when you're flying over and paying thousands for just the the flights before you even factor in you know booth fees uh, yeah there are a handful of vendors that just kind of leave a guy behind as well for a couple of months to trek around and do other uh magic fests or you know whatever events that like you could call it the the parent company or an umbrella company is doing despite the fact that they're not actually integrated at any level. They're just you yeah. know, vendors that work cross regions, so to speak. So to gather more experience or more exposure, get people used to seeing like some of your employees elsewhere, they'll just leave somebody behind for a bit to do a handful of events in a row and then bring them back because oftentimes that one-off event doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you have an event on the West Coast of the United States and an event on the East Coast. Of the United States, you want to do both, but leaving the entire crew doesn't work there. So you partner up with somebody that you have experience with, and and that's an extremely symbiotic relationship. So. And that's that's even common with judges as well. Well, you'll have yep. a judge that's judging a Grand Prix, and they get with a vendor that's like, hey, so I'm flying in from Brazil for this event, and it's really not worth it for me to just be there for one weekend do you want to go to like the next few GPs together? And that's something else that a lot of vendors build those relationships with judges, with other vendors, with whatever. Yeah. I know a couple of years ago in, um, uh, was the Grand Prix that was in the Philip, was it the Philippines? Oh geez. I don't know. Oh no, it was Brazil, Brazil. There was a booth that was literally just a bunch of independent buyers mm -hmm. that like, hey, uh, we just kind of want to go to Brazil, oh, but yeah, we're not yeah, yeah. contracted for this event, so do you just want to split the cost and bring your own stock? And that's just how the booth was done. And that's another yeah. thing that can be pretty common is trying to make sure, like, hey, we're going to make this trip happen. How can we properly staff our booth? Making sure you have your experience, your numbers, your logistics, your heart of house, you know, processors, whatever, which will 
get to next later, episode. Yeah. But it, and for the most part, the idea of the booth chop still exists. You just have to kind of rephrase it, much like uh, redistributing your top eight prizes. There yeah. is language you can use that gets you around the channel fireball or whomever's contract without issue to chop a booth, just like there are ways to concede to somebody in the top eight and still accrue more prize than you were originally allotted. Yeah. And it, it's not difficult. It didn't take too long to figure out and is actually more helpful overall at the Magic Fest scene than initially thought because it does allow this kind of transient activity, so to speak, where you'll just have vendors who really need to be on the train, so to speak, to keep their business alive because that's their business model. But yeah. single-handedly taking out a $6,000 booth fee does not work for them as an individual before you even figure in you know, the local talent or whomever is going to come with them. However, a two- or three-way chop allows everybody to get what they need in these instances and still allows that business to serve its need and represent itself at these events. Yeah. So, <clears throat> But I think that's all we have for this. It's not too heady. It's just kind of unique thinking about the experience yeah. behind the uh, the buyer or in the buyer seat. So it was something we wanted to touch on in depth since you know done it briefly before. Yeah. Are you ready for your pick? I went first last I, week, so you can have this one. I am. Okay. So my pick this week, and I'm going to preface this by saying reprint risk. Safi Eric Stoder from Time Spiral. Kind of an interesting time to pick it. So new pod got spoiled. Uh, could not possibly to be too busted. Pod is a perfectly healthy, perfectly safe, okay card to be reprinted at any time ever. There is nothing wrong with that card, so let's make another one, but this time it's tribal. Well, Safi Eric Stoder is a really good tribal card that is a commander and a set that's almost 20 years old now that has not seen a significant reprint and has gradually just had lowering population on TCG through natural demand. Yep. Uh, the foil price has been com relatively static since it spiked back in 2017 and then fell back to around like 30 bucks where it is now. Interestingly enough, the low on this card has been trending down lately. I think that in terms of EDH, which is where birthing pod type cards go Absolutely. to live on in eternity. Yeah. Uh, once they're banned from constructed formats, Safi's already a pretty combo-rific general. Yes. Uh, it's a card that has a lot of utility, even outside of being a human. Uh, just good value, even if you're not a combo. It's in colors that like value, like rats, like stuff like that, like effects that cause you to sacrifice creatures because you can just get it back. Yes. So I think this is something that realistically you're probably looking at about a maybe six month span. Why six months? Well, Time Spiral 2. And that's why I said reprint risk. If yeah. this card can dodge a reprint in Time Spiral 2, I think that with the printing of Pod, it only stands to gain even more than it already has. Uh, I think that right now sitting at a low of about five six dollars 
could easily reach an $11 buy list and get the double up if pod starts to take off in modern, mm -hmm. legacy, wherever Bad. humans exists. Yeah. Yep. Uh, not to mention the EDH explosion that's Found competitive that. EDH is taking off. So it's only going to continue to go up. So I think that this is something that with only one printing that is as old as it is, has nowhere to go but up. And it's a huge opportunity for gain, assuming you're willing to accept the risk of a potential reprint in Time Spiral 2. Yeah, I, the one thing I, I like about uh, Safi is that I believe, and I'm double checking this, oh, it misspells legend. Um, I think it might be one of the cheapest legendary humans available. I think it is. Um, um, aside from the general Kabuto, the black-white one that just came out. Yep. So, yeah, there, there are a handful at two. Uh, there are 31 in various colors. A couple in Selesnia. There's a Sisse. Of get. course. Uh, Safi just does something extremely unique. I'm checking one, because I think it's like Norin the Wary. Yeah, it's a lot of mono yeah. white crap in a Micaeus. So, yeah. No, Sa uh, I didn't see anything in Mardu, which is where I would think you would want to be outside of Selesnia for some kind of birthing pod deck, because that gives you birthing pod. Uh, Pyre of Heroes, which is the new birthing pod, and I brought it up, which has been a little too hard to read. It gives you Worldly Tutor. It gives you I, uh, Enlightened Tutor. It gives you Eldamri's Call, a num uh, all the green search you could ever want for yeah. creatures, and provides an interesting effect that allows you know, a, a creature to live through Wrath. I played through this card in Modern, and it is a hell of a card to attempt to deal with. The, the interesting part about Time Spiral 2 is that we don't have word if it's going to be a reprint set focus at the original time spiral or if it's just going to have the kind of theme that the original time spiral had which is just cycling up quote-unquote old design yeah and the reprints that we know in chalice of the void yeah. Path to, and relentless rats don't really answer any other questions because they're all in the time shifted slot which is basically the cards that were time spiraled into the block at this new rarity so they had the, the purple yeah. rarity symbol i think across all of them so if this is a set that does not focus on reprinting time spiral or time spiral block cards then i don't think this card has a very high reprint risk overall and thus it becomes a very unique look for an edh general that does something extremely unique in its position the yep. If we do get word that it's going to be focused on reprinting Time Spiral or Time Spiral Block, I don't think this is high on the list of cards to reprint because for green-white legends, I don't know if Watsy sees this as being the greatest EDH general of all time for their targeted market, so I wouldn't expect a dedicated reprint in that set. I also think that if they decide to reprint Human something, it's not the first one they're going to go to. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's what I'm know. getting at. Yeah. yeah, maybe Rick as not Rick, since everyone's up in arms about that. Yep. But yeah, the, the, there are options for them to reprint over this card. I think in regards to that, like the reprint equity, I think that's extremely uh, low. If, if even if it is going to be a dedicated reprint set, I think in terms yeah. of EDH playability, it 
It deserves a great look because like I said, it is something that is extremely unique. And with the change to the, the rule about commanders going to the graveyard, the fact that it does trigger some leaves the battlefield effects does mean it becomes a little more unique than other options that are out yeah. there. Um, if you're playing a pod deck, you want your creatures to give you value on the way in or the way out, and options like Sisse and some of the other ones in Green White are more about just turning your creatures sideways and not comboing. Yeah. You know, this is a card that looks a little more towards that. So uh, overall, I, I, I like... I like the pick, and because it's one of those things where demand is organic, and the moment somebody plays this card as a general on the myriad of EDH YouTube channels and Twitch streams, that's when you know lasers are going to focus and people are going to move on this card because they saw it being played and it did well. It happens yeah. all the time, and once it does, boom, gone. So, I like it. My pick, sticking with EDH as I try to, except for when I don't, is uh, Argentum Armor. Specific I fucking love that card. I do too. Specifically from Scars, <laughs> look, from Scars of Mirrodin, uh, it's so good. Um, my first experience with this card was when I was looking for stuff to, th to animate to throw with Bosch in my Crush deck to power up Crush. So it was like Argentum Armor because it's a two-way card, offense, defense, uh draco like aladdin's lamp just big things to throw right and yeah. the reason i i like this as a two-way card is because it just problem solves it doesn't matter what color you're in it's a problem solving trigger in combat it's outstanding uh, but this is a card i've actually been tracking for four months four months when i initially put this on uh, my list of cards to track Card Kingdom was buying $32 at $1.15, and TCG Market was $1.52 with 126 unique prices. Uh, when I announced in our Discord that this is the card I was looking at, CK had it, CK is buying $75 at $1.40, and it took four months for this card to come back to what it was after a dip over the summer for some reason. And there are 69 nice uh, LP or better at a dollar fifty-nine market price on TCG Player, right? So this card has finally begun to see movement again after the kind of like EDH stagnation that we saw over the summer. And looking at the data on Rec, I found exactly what I thought I would, which is this goes in heavy punch dot deck. You just play this alongside generals that want to just turn sideways and slam jam with equipment. Yeah. And you, you can see it from the top commanders. It's like everything ever that just wants to attack in any color combination except Autumn Willow. That one's there for reasons I can't explain. But, yeah. uh, you know, that said, this is an incredibly large equipment. It costs six, it gives plus six, plus six, and the attack trigger cannot be understated. Yeah. So, this bolst it's bolstered by a number of equipment-based like synergistic decks um and Hammer time yep then from commander legends that it got aid in like rokgar it got aid with a, the new akiri it got uh arden there, like six there's new, a lot six new legends from commander legends are pushing on this card overall 
and it allows you to just win super quickly with your general, which is my understanding of what it's going to do in Rokgar, or however you pronounce the Zero CMC Cobalt's name. And that's a deck that has problem with removal. So there you go. Slots yeah. right in, becomes incredible, and it's just this great uh, utility artifact. And the more you dig in across these decks, the more you see that Argentum Armor falls into the utility artifact category. So whenever people are categor categorizing their stuff or however EDH uh, splits this stuff out, it is, boom, immediately utility, appropriately. So, yes. Uh, I like it a lot because it's had enough reprints that it's in that sweet spot of it hasn't been reprinted into the ground so there's still opportunity for growth oh yeah and there is enough supply there to satisfy a need which means that the liquidity is really high on this card so i actually have so, a, a note about that sure but i it was, it was i was traipsing through this card for like two hours today just looking at at stats and stuff and the filters are now back on EDH rec after I couldn't find it for like a month, so I was playing around. Right. So, uh, like he's invigorated demand, right, with Commander Legends. So, moving on a few copies now for $1.50 or so, and I would expect turnaround to be somewhere in three to six months as long as organic demand continues and as long as it continues to trend. The kind yeah. of problem that I saw with Argentum Armor, and we'll go back to stocks, is that recently the market spiked tailed off and now it's just kind of coming back and it's sitting above average which i'm fine with i just want to see this demand kind of continue and, and trend upwards a little bit the expectation based on Caltime spoilers thus far is that we'll continue to get new equipment in at least white for the time being that should help keep yeah. demand high on these older pieces of equipment for equipment themed decks the other thing I noted is that foils are moving well, and the Biolist on CK has been more reactive to demand overall, as there's only one printing of the foil. However, the delta between those two prices, TCG market for a foil, and CK Biolist is a lot larger than the non-foil for the Commander reprintings and the set version. So, not buyer beware, but we're not going to get another set foil of this for a while. Yeah. But if you want... I if you want to park your money, I'm into that one. And I, I think it's worth noting that as far as reprint equity goes, for like purposes of foils, Argentum is plain specific. Yes. So it's I, if you do decide to park your money, it's relatively safe. Yep. Uh, unless we go back to Mirrodin for some reason, which would be absolutely something yes. Wizards of the Coast would do. Yep. So uh, regarding versions to look at, the reason why I said set and commander is because the delta across all of them is basically the same there's no difference in the art the frames are now nearly identical the only difference being the foil uh whatever you want to call it the foil icon on commander 2017 and you lose the coalition watermark that exists on the set version so that's kind of interesting but that's really a negligible difference between the three versions now to go back to the point that you were making before, I started digging in on the timelines for this because I knew it would be reprinted, I just couldn't remember when. So there are two reprints of this card and they are both in the Equipment Matters Commander decks. The first one was Nahiri the Lithomancer, the Mono White Planeswalker deck from 2014. The second was Arabo, Roar of the World. Uh, that's the Green White Cats and Hats deck from 2017. So we might actually be up for another reprint because the gap between set Nihiri 
three years. Nihiri, the uh, Arabo, three years. And we're just about on that four-year cusp. So if we get in a, a reprint in a commander set or a supplemental, it might be this year just based on the... Uh, yeah, exactly. The, the cycle that we've seen thus far. That does not worry me. Coming out of the supplementals, if you take a look at stock, Argentum Armor cost held pretty steady through this entire time. The only thing that slowed it down on Biolist, it seemingly just this intangible stagnation on EDH over the summer. But the market kept moving. The market price kept moving through the summer. It was just Biolist that stagnated. So on the open market, there was still the ability to churn this card. If you wanted to yeah. move this for more than buy list now, you could do that immediately. Starting last weekend, you could have moved it to arbitrage, or moved it for arbitrage to CK buy list. Now, if you buy it, you should just be able to wait a week or two and list it back on TCG Player for a small profit. The longer you wait, obviously, the bigger it's going to be, but you can get out sooner than this three to six month timeline that I'm kind of looking at for this card overall. If you're gonna to stick to the foil, that is definitely the case. Because as you mentioned, Argentum, plain specific. We would have to go back to Mirrodin to get that, or it would have to come out in some kind of master set, which I really doubt they're gonna do because six for an equipment and then six to equip again is a lot to ask. And I don't think they've put Batter Skull in a, a supplemental set that's been no. drafted. And I, I think that's the key thing for a master's reprint is outside of something like a commander's legend which we just dodged the reprint on obviously double masters uh, batter skull was in double masters but yeah, yeah. double masters had the tron lands that was a draft environment that could support it i don't yes. see how you're going to support that in an edh style set uh but who knows nope. watsi has you know printed fallen empires so here we are yeah so like I said, Argentum Armor is my, my card for this week. It finally started to see the movement I wanted to see after four months of just, you know, peeping it every week. And this is a card I believe in for the short to midterm for immediate profit, the buy list. You know, after that, it's just all gravy, man. Yeah. So. That's Ryan. I, I, I think it's really solid. I think the timeline is really good and i think that it's another one of those edh picks that if paper happens anytime soon uh you know goes up even faster so oh yeah i think it's all good yep uh, and if you think you're paying six to put this card into play i'm pretty sure you're sadly mistaken because the longer you look at the list of cards that synergize with it the more you're going to find ways to just cheat into play for free or for yep. cheap that's the other thing is like you you dig into the equipment matters like boros decks dive under the covers and you'll just see ways to cheat this thing into play man all day long that i think that's the other thing that was overlooked by this card is people shied away from it because it costs six to play and six to equip you know yeah with pure steel paladin it costs zero to equip it's just two other artifacts and you can play you know an artifact land and a solar ring and like whoopie poop yeah two artifact pretty lands good and a yeah like, don't be scared of the cmc on this bad boy but i think that's going to do it for us this week so we i got are, nothing else yeah you either. So we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, YouTube, and you can find the podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible. And I am at Haltai Reptar on Twitter if you want to reach me directly. You are at Thirsty Sizzling. We'll see you guys next week.